Welcome to a special discussion episode on the war in Ukraine. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. John, how are you doing? Doing all right. Good. And you? I am well. Really uh, excited to talk about this. We kind of put it off a little bit because we were waiting for things to develop. Yeah, uh, and that's, and I think, important to get a little bit of perspective, not immediately react. Of course, it's the job of you know news commentators and politicians and pundits to do that, and that's not a criticism. But as historians, we want to kind of get a little bit of space yeah. as much as is possible. Absolutely. And before we do that, I want to make a quick note about something else that happened in the world. We're recording this on Tuesday, and as regular listeners know, we posted last week on Monday an episode about firearms, and, and we said that you know there hadn't been a high-profile mass shooting. Well, it turns out, tragically, that on Monday, the day the episode went up, there was one in Sacramento, California, so just wanted to say that we recognize that, and our thoughts and prayers and our hearts go out to the victims and their families. So yeah, I wanted to make that point before we get into Ukraine stuff. Yes, absolutely. So how's this going to go? Do you have some kind of questions, I, thoughts? What are we uh, What are we talking about? Are yeah. we going to get involved in the politics of this whole situation? <laughs> are we going to try to avoid that? What What should our audience be prepared for? So I want to set some guardrails. Okay. Um, the first one is I want to try and avoid politics as best we can. Yeah. Sometimes that does seep in. Certainly despite, in a political issue sure, like a war, yeah. Sure. Sometimes that does seep in despite our attempts to exclude them. So we're going to do our very best to not include any politics here. Smart. The second thing is I want to discuss the current events as a reflection of history. So okay. when we're thinking about the why and the possible outcomes that could happen as a result of what's going on mm-hmm. in the Ukraine, I want to look at this through that lens. I wanted to also discuss how current events can play out based on history. So what we have seen in the that past... That sounds like a what if, Joe. It's not. I promise <laughs> it's not because this terrible thing is actually happening. Yeah. So based on that, on some possible outcomes, what would be the resulting change, not only in Europe, but the worldwide? Okay. My hope is that in this discussion, we'll inherently highlight the importance of looking at current events through the lens of history. And Absolutely. in doing so, really encourage our audience, hey, it's important to, to research and read and understand this because it really does give perspective. It does. You're absolutely right. So. All right. All right. First question. Guardrails in place. Guardrails in place. First question. Why did Putin invade the Ukraine? You know, that's a really complex, like most questions that we talk about here on this podcast. It has a variety of factors into it. He invaded the Ukraine in part to stop what he believed was its eventual accession into NATO. You know, since the end of the Cold War, NATO has gradually expanded eastward toward Russia. And Russia, as I think we've talked about in this podcast in the past, has a very, very unique attitude toward foreigners of any kind. It's rooted in Russian history. It's rooted in Russian culture. It is a generalization. Obviously, if we have listeners in Russia, this is not necessarily saying that this is true of you. But generally speaking, Russians are very, very suspect of any kind of foreigners. Because of the unique history of being a massive country that borders a lot of smaller countries, which are often very hostile, you think of the three successive major invasions that Russia faced with Sweden in the 1700s, Napoleon in the 1800s, and Hitler in the 1900s. All of that is going to do a lot to shape Russia's cultural and national identity. So Russia is very concerned about any potential aggression taking place on its border or expansion towards its border, whether it's real or perceived. Now, Russia has always viewed NATO as a threat because NATO was set up to counter Russian expansion when it was part of the Soviet Union. And that attitude has not changed, even though the Soviet Union no longer exists. Now it's just Russia and the Confederation of Independent States that kind of surround it, the former states of the Soviet Union. 
So as NATO has expanded in Eastern Europe and especially in the Baltic states with Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, the Russians have viewed that as encroachment on what has traditionally been their sphere of influence. It's also true in the Balkans. In Southern Europe, Russia has had long-standing designs on that part of the world, not necessarily trying to invade and conquer it, but certainly to be in control of kind of who's running that part of the world. And most of the Balkan, if not all of the Balkan states, have now joined NATO. A lot of them have joined the European Union, which as an economic union is less a political threat or a military threat, but it is an economic competitor to Russia. So Ukraine, if it were to ever to join the EU or join NATO, that would be a very, very serious threat to Russia's perceived national security because it borders the Russian state. It has long and historic ties to Russia, a large portion, not a majority, but there are huge numbers of Russian people who live in Ukraine, especially in Crimea, the area taken in 2014, and in the Donbass, which is one of the regions that's being disputed right now. You also have to consider Putin's personality. Putin is a former member of the KGB, even though there's really no such thing. He is an intensely... I won't say paranoid, but intensely suspicious human being based on kind of everything, all the psychoanalysis that's been going on right now. There's a lot of concern about him personally and the decision-making process that he went through. Some people say he's ill. I don't know about that, not being any kind of behavioral psychologist or doctor. I can't speak to that. But a lot of people on all sides of the political aisle and on both sides of this kind of analysis that we in the West are doing right now are thinking that maybe there's something going on with him. And then you also have to look to current realities. Russia is a dying country. Its population is shrinking. It needs a fresh influx of blood, you might say, of people. Ukraine has about the same number of people as California does, so that would be a huge positive shock to the size of the Russian economy, the size of the Russian population. And there are all kinds of other factors. I, I haven't covered all of them, but those I think are the three big ones. Okay. Going back to NATO, correct me if I'm wrong, but NATO has not taken an aggressive military action for decades, correct? Well, it depends how you define aggressive action. Why would Putin be concerned with the Ukraine joining NATO if historically NATO has not taken an action against him and against his country? NATO hasn't taken an aggressive stance or an aggressive move against Russia directly. That's true. However, again, because of this whole, the whole idea of a Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states, you do see, for example, 2005, 2006, I believe it was, is when the U.S. first started positioning anti-ballistic missile weaponry in Poland. Now, those are defensive weapons. There is no offensive, objectively, no offensive capability for an anti-ballistic missile system. However, it is used to counter ballistic missiles that most of the time have a nuclear warhead on them. Putin saw that as one, a violation of the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which it was, I mean, just looking at the clear sure, lines sure. Of, the, of what the treaty says. But President Bush at the time, because of kind of the reaction to 9-11, and actually may have been a little bit, now that I'm thinking of the timeline, it may have been earlier, kind of right as the Iraq war is heating up and, and in the early years of that, we were concerned about wanting to be able to shoot down Russian missiles if, God forbid, Russia were to interfere or engage actively on the opposing side in the war on terror. and. Bush had campaigned on restoring that system that Reagan had put in place or tried to put in place with the Star Wars system, never got very far, but technology had advanced. 
my point is Putin saw that as an attack, not necessarily on Russia itself, but on Russian influence and Russian interests, because he wants to be able to project power far beyond his borders. The reality from the end of the Cold War and even the last years of the Soviet Union going forward almost to today is that Russia is largely speaking a third world country with a third world economy, but a first world military. Okay. Were it not for Russia's nuclear arsenal and its oil and natural gas resources, Russia would be one of the poorest countries in the world. Okay. And Putin needs to maintain both of those in order to maintain Russia's national prestige relative to its neighbors and to the wider world. So any threat to that prestige, any threat to that interest of his, he's going to take very seriously. And then when you combine that with NATO's expansion eastward, admitting new member states, that's going to concern him. Now, from most of the period between the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 to today, no Ukrainian leader who has taken seriously has suggested Ukraine joining NATO. Yeah. And no one, as far as I know, until fairly recently has said on the NATO side that we need to admit Ukraine into NATO. We've kind of accepted that Ukraine is going to be mostly in the Russian sphere of influence and we're not interested in adding it. Now, that's changed, obviously, because of the current situation. And that really started with 2014, the invasion of Crimea. That's when you started to see some people with some influence saying, hey, maybe we do need to get NATO involved here, which, objectively speaking, would have very, very serious geopolitical consequences, not just for NATO and Russia, but for the entire planet. So Putin does not like the idea of being fenced in. Correct. Okay. And that's not just true of Putin. That's every Russian leader from, like, Peter the Great straight forward to today. Sure. How much of that history reflects on Putin? How much of his behavior is reflective of classic behavior seen in that country when it comes to not just like foreign countries, but from a position of war in general? I think as we talked about in the Stalin episode, probably a couple months ago now, Russia has a very unique relationship with its history, again, because of the invasions, again, because of just kind of their general sense of insecurity with the size of the country and how often it has been threatened economically, geopolitically, militarily. I think all of that weighs on Putin. He is very well-educated based on everything I've read about him. He understands Russian history, world history, and I think that he would take a very historical approach to any threat, kind of what we're doing, looking at the past and then kind of thinking through, all right, how might this play out given the historical factors under consideration? So when we think about the footage that we saw at the onset of the invasion— from my perspective, it seemed very sporadic. It seemed very undirected. Mm -hmm. And it seemed very light, comparatively. When looking at the history of how they conduct war, it seemed like a very tame application of their strategy and tactics. Yep. Would you agree? And if so, why did they do that? That's a really good question. So two possible answers. One... Putin recognizes the objective fact that the Russian military is not in particularly good shape. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, there has been a dramatic decrease in spending, especially on training and on equipment in the Russian military. The Russian military is still huge, but its equipment is largely the same as what it was in like the early 1990s. Wow. Okay. So you also have the reality that the Russian oligarchs, the kind of shadowy group of people that's always being talked about in the press, that's being sanctioned by various countries, they have enriched themselves to a tremendous degree by exploiting lucrative contracts with the military. They're enriching themselves instead of passing on the actual money and the equipment and things like that to the Russian soldiers. 
Those are the objective facts. So either Putin recognized that horrific state of the Russian military. They're not particularly well-trained. They don't have a whole lot of equipment. And so about 250, maybe 300,000 troops was all he could muster. It's either that, or he actually has considerably more troops at his disposal, but he didn't want to launch a full-scale kind of blitzkrieg against Ukraine, similar to what was done in World War II and in earlier conflicts where Russia basically just says, all right, we don't care how many casualties we take, we are going to create this armed, mechanized, motorized juggernaut and just roll right through these countries. I think, given the experience of the Soviet military in Afghanistan, he probably wanted a more limited campaign because we still don't know how many soldiers died in the Afghanistan war from 1979 to 1989. And that was a full-scale military invasion. I don't think he wanted to see those same kind of casualty figures. So he engaged in a limited war, probably thinking that the Ukrainians would give up, that the Ukrainian people might rise, especially the Russian-speaking ones who are kind of scattered throughout the country. They're concentrated in the East, but there are Russians all over the place, and that they would help him. Now, again, I don't know, and this is, this is speculation, but I think that's probably the more likely of the two reasons why this military campaign is not a, you know, Blitzkrieg-style assault on Berlin, kind yeah, of like what, to, what yeah. we saw in World War II. And to clarify, all their actions have been horrific. I'm not trying to say that yeah. anything has been, has been light, but I'm thinking, again, through the lens of history, in comparison, it is light True. compared to what they usually do. Yeah. So when we're thinking about information that's coming out of the Ukraine, we're told every day that Putin is trying to sell this idea that the actions he's taking in the Ukraine are justified. Mm -hmm. He continually does that. We expected that. Everyone expects that. No one's surprised by that. Very few people are talking about some of the uh, misinformation coming out of the Ukraine in terms of what is going on from their perspective. Mm -hmm. And not trying to minimize what's going on there. It's obviously not necessarily moral equivalency between Zelensky and Putin or something like that. I just want to talk about it because it's a weapon used by both sides. So can you speak to its role and what is it trying to accomplish? Generally speaking, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, whatever you want to say, is used in two ways. One is used for domestic consumption. So since the rise of modern media in like the early 1900s, propaganda, and even earlier, but, but especially with modern media, propaganda, for example, during the First World War was used at home in the United Kingdom, in Germany, in France, and to a lesser extent here in the United States to promote the government's agenda. I think that's what Putin is doing in Russia, and also what, to a lesser extent, Zelensky is doing in Ukraine. Ukraine is a more open society with internet connections, thanks to um, Elon Musk and others who are who are providing them with right. internet yeah. access. You don't have that in Russia. So all you have is state-controlled media to a vastly larger extent. I'm sure there are some free outlets, but they're very, very quiet right now, and not because they don't want to get thrown in a gulag. Sorry, a labor camp of strict regime. They don't have gulags in Russia anymore. And then the second purpose of propaganda is to shape foreign attitudes. The best example of this in history, again, comes from World War I with stories of German atrocities in Belgium that were published by the Allies specifically to turn American opinion against Germany and toward the cause of the Allied powers. We saw the same thing in World War II on all sides, and I think we're seeing some of it now. Some of that is the misinformation that we're, that's coming out. There have been s- repeated stories that have come from the Ukrainian side of this war that turned out to be false. Now, is that because of a lack of information? Maybe the reporters got it wrong? Maybe. Is it for deliberate purposes in order to shape Western opinion? Maybe. I'm not here to, to speculate on motives or anything like that. But the real-world reaction has been a growing sense here in the West, and especially in the UK and the US, 
that maybe we do need to be more involved, not just providing aid and, and weapons and money and things like that to the Ukrainians, but maybe we do need a no-fly zone. Maybe we do need more direct action against Russian interests and Russian assets elsewhere in the world. We saw this this past weekend when President Zelensky actually appeared at the Grammys. Very I was going to ask briefly. you about that. That was that's, unprecedented, right? I think so. And that's not misinformation. I don't want to say that he was lying or anything like that. I actually don't know what he said. But the whole purpose of any kind of appearance by Putin, by Zelensky, by anyone in their government is to promote an agenda. Right. Now, that agenda is in part defending the homeland versus, you know, denazifying Ukraine, which is a ridiculous term. Generally speaking, I'm sure there are, I mean, there, there are bad people in all countries. Maybe there are a few in, in Ukraine. I don't, I confess I don't know. But his stated objective, Putin's stated objective at the start of the war to denazify Ukraine, I, I think is certainly overstated and possibly oh, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. When government leaders speak, it's to promote an agenda. And that appearance by Zelensky on television, at the Grammys and things like that, is to push this idea of more aid, more assistance, more Western involvement in the war in Russia. Because Zelensky knows that if Putin is forced to go, you know, full hog, blitzkrieg invasion, Zelensky will lose, at least on, on the battlefield. Russia will overwhelm Ukraine, just it's a, it's a function of numbers. Now, will they be able to hold Ukraine? That's a whole different issue right. with a long-term insurgency and things like that. And that's a horrifying prospect. So the only way he can win on the battlefield, Zelensky, is with American and Western help. And that's why he's trying to push us further and further along into intervening. So on that note, what should we expect to happen, given the strategy and tactics being used? Because to your point earlier, what I've seen is horrific, sporadic, tactical assaults on targets that are not a threat mm -hmm. to troops. So civilian homes, apartments, buildings, cities being absolutely demolished. Mm -hmm. Like to your comment earlier, again, it seemed like Putin had an idea that the Ukraine would fall quickly and it hasn't. And so he's increased his uh, terror operations. Terror you might oper say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And become more and more aggressive. Some people call it unhinged. Some people call, call it unstable, but his intention is obviously to, to win something. Yeah. Right. So given that and how things have progressed Based on history, what do you expect to happen as a result of this campaign? Generally speaking, terror campaigns only stiffen resistance on the other side. Again, looking to history, I think one of the best examples is the Battle of Britain. I'm not necessarily comparing Zelensky to Churchill. They do have kind of similar um, backgrounds and being political outsiders, kind of thrust into a situation. But Churchill, during World War II, as we have talked about many times in this podcast, through his words, through his deeds, is able to rally the British people in the face of the Nazi bombing of London and of other cities across the UK to say, we will not bow to this. Zelensky has the responsibility as the duly elected leader of Ukraine to do the exact same thing. If he is successful in doing that, if he can harden Ukrainian resistance to such a degree that no amount of terror will force them to capitulate, then we are looking at either Russian escalation to the point where they are destroying whole cities and towns, committing acts of genocide, which is not the same thing as genocide. Unfortunately, a lot of media people are, are mixing the two. There is a legal distinction. But the acts of genocide will continue, and then Putin has a choice. Do I pull back and accept defeat, knowing I can't conquer this country, or do I go even further, full-scale invasion with 
couple, maybe a million soldiers or, or certainly you know, many hundreds of thousands? Do I use chemical, biological, God forbid, nuclear weapons? That's one option. The other option or the other possible outcome is the Ukrainians ultimately do break. And then we see, and then we see Putin get what he wants. Now, there is a middle course, that, and that's a negotiated piece, and that's, I think, what everyone listening to this podcast and everyone watching this is hoping for. But as the terror ratchets up, I think you make a negotiated piece less likely okay. because the Ukrainian people are watching what's happening. We saw these horrific photos out of, I think it's pronounced Baka or yeah. B-A-C-H-A. Uh, it's a suburb of Kiev, and I mean, it is... It's, it, it's like nothing it's we've seen since World War II. I mean, to, to an extent, the, uh, the genocide in Kosovo and in Serbia, uh, Yugoslavia in the 90s. But before that, you've got, to go back to, you've got to go back to World War II, at least for a European example. Obviously, there have been horrific acts like this all around the world. But we, it's kind of interesting how, how so many Westerners kind of thought, well, this could never happen in Europe. It turns out human nature doesn't change. No, it doesn't. We've just been enjoying here in the West a prolonged period of, of relative peace and stability relative to the previous four or five centuries. Yeah. I think looking, again, through the lens of history, it, it, as you do that, you're less inclined to think this, this can't happen again. Yeah. It, it grants a lot of perspective. John, a lot of people, both in the news and um, podcasts abroad— a lot of uh, individuals are wondering what China's move will be against Taiwan. I know that this is a mm. separate, enti entirely separate oh, thing. Oh, yeah. But Russia and China are allies. China has a history. The Chinese government, the Chinese communist government, has a history of uh, committing atrocities. Mm -hmm. So given that history, what do you see China doing? And I'm asking specifically because I believe that the response to the Russian invasion of the Ukraine has been different than any other time in history because everyone is more aware of it mm -hmm. and the images and videos and atrocities that we're seeing are in real time. They're not in a published paper that happens afterward. These yep. are like real-time images being shared, real-time uh, shots of, of- Social media doing some good. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think as a result of that, more and more people are committing their support, actually, like actually supporting them where it's this worldwide influx. And I think that that may, may have, I could be wrong, may have deterred China from, from doing what it was planning to do at the onset. So in a long way, I'm asking, what, what do you think China will do as a result of what is happening in the Ukraine? Yeah. I agree to a point that, yes, I think this, this response to the invasion has been something we haven't seen before. And I think it is social media and modern media and mass media and things like that. And also just the fact that Ukraine was objectively not a threat to Russia on its own. Now, U Ukraine joining NATO, maybe that's, a, that's, again, a bigger question. In terms of China, you said that China and Russia were allies. I don't know that I would go that far. I think that they are partners. You know, China is kind of bailing Russia out in terms of oil and gas uh, production and, and purchases. But China has long coveted not just Taiwan, but the resource-rich areas of Siberia. If I'm Xi Jinping sitting in Beijing watching all of this, I am looking at a Russian military that can't conquer a country that's like one-eighth its size, if that, or maybe even smaller. And I'm going, hmm, look at logistically, if there were to be a conflict between Russia and China, how would Russia do? Their military is still largely rail-bound. There are only a few rail lines between European and Russia, where a majority of their military is, generally speaking, stationed, and the Russo-Chinese border. 
I do think you're right that Taiwan, the, their plans for Taiwan have been kind of pushed back. I do think, I mean, China is eventually going to make some kind of move on Taiwan, right. maybe military, right. maybe otherwise. But I would be looking, if I was a Chinese leader at this point, looking at, hmm, maybe Russia is not as strong as we thought. And maybe while we are partners now, maybe we should shift our attention to the other side of China. Instead of looking to go southeast towards Taiwan, maybe a northern focus might be, might be equally as beneficial. It's all a guess. Right. I, 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 don't I expected know, a guess. Yeah. It, it's, it's just, this has shifted a lot of the dynamics that people are used to. That is interesting. I've not thought of it that way. I've always been eyes on Taiwan yeah. trying to think through. And, and if I was a person in Taiwan, I would be terrified right, right now. Because we're seeing, yes, a tremendous you know, outgrowth of public support, but are we seeing the United States and other Western countries that are aligned with Ukraine actually intervening? No, we're not. It would be much easier to intervene to help Ukraine establish a no-fly zone because you're part of a continental landmass. If China invades Taiwan, the United States has very limited response with conventional military assets other than aircraft carriers, sure. submarines. Our, our military bases in the Pacific are not large enough. We would almost have to either give Taiwan the weapons it needed to defend itself, which would include nuclear weapons, or we would have to use them ourselves. And that is, again, we're talking global consequences in yeah, that in that Probably instance. not the cards, I, I would think. I would hope not. Yeah, yeah. I would hope not. All right, John, I have a question that has three parts. What implications will the Ukrainian invasion have long-term in Europe if Putin wins all of Ukraine? It will show that aggression works, which is something that we have believed since at least the end of the Cold War, you might say at the end of the Second World War, that aggression doesn't work, that, that there will always be someone who will deter, another superpower that will deter uh, aggressive nations, if he is able to take Ukraine and profit by it, if there's not a large-scale civil uprising in Ukraine, it, it will embolden other bad actors, not just in the West, but around the world. It will show that Europe, that NATO, that the United States and Canada are not capable of defending a country that they are, again, aligned with, not allied to. It will force Europe to spend more of its own budgets on national budgets, on the military. It will have serious implications for food prices worldwide. The Ukraine is a very fertile country. Russia will be able to grow more food. Russia already has a large portion of the world's food being grown within its borders and also especially fertilizer. We're seeing that's one of the reasons why prices are skyrocketing right now on, on food is because of these sanctions. Not making a political point, just stating a fact. That will continue as long as these sanctions go on, and Russia will be able to counter those sanctions with newly acquired food sources in Ukraine. So those are just some of the possible downstream effects if he is successful in capturing and controlling Ukraine. What if Putin wins a portion of the Ukraine? I think that's the most likely. I think at the end of all this, there will be a partition of Ukraine. I think that the Donbass and Crimea and other regions that are largely ethnically Russian will probably either secede from Ukraine and you'll have two Ukraines, one a Russian puppet state and the other an ethnically Ukrainian state, or they'll be absorbed into Russia. And I think that given the alternatives, massive civil unrest in Ukraine lasting for years in which hundreds of thousands of people on both sides may die, 
or Putin being forced to escalate the terror campaign, it not working, and him finally saying, all right, we're going to use WMDs, nuclear, chemical, biological. Nobody wants either of those. And so I think a negotiated peace with a partition or a permanently neutral Ukraine is the most likely and think the most desirable outcome, given where we are right now in April of 2022. Obviously, it would have been better if this war had never happened, but we're past that. What happens if Putin loses? Two options. He goes full Brezhnev and unleashes a campaign of terror again as his troops withdraw, kind of like what happened in Prague 1968 in in the Czech Republic when they rebelled against the Soviets, Brezhnev sent in troops, and it was just, let's teach him a lesson. Or, which then, again, has global implications, or he goes full Gorbachev. He recognizes that Russia as a nuclear superpower has a responsibility not just to itself, but to the rest of humanity to cool it to not escalate these things to the point where one side or the other is forced because it has no other alternative to use weapons of mass destruction. And that is a decision that only Vladimir Putin can make. Gorbachev at the end of the Soviet Union in 1989 could have launched missiles, could have sent the Red Army into the revolting states of Eastern Europe. He chose not to. It's why he won the Nobel Prize. It's why the Cold War ended with the signing of documents instead of the burning of cities. And if we get to that point, I hope that Putin chooses to follow that. We should all hope that Putin chooses to follow that model. Whatever scenario plays out, people are already talking about war crimes. Mm -hmm. Will Putin, again, looking through the historical lens, will Putin be prosecuted for any of those? Only if he is overthrown, either by a massive escalation involving NATO— as President Biden talked about a couple of weeks ago when he talked about, you know, this man cannot remain in power. If he is overthrown and captured, yes, he can be brought before The Hague. Or if he is overthrown by his own people and turned over to the International Criminal Court at The Hague. But that's the only way that Putin will ever be held legally accountable. Now, we can continue with sanctions until he agrees to some kind of recompense for victims of uh, war crimes or something like that. But in, in order to hold him personally accountable, that's the only way to do it, is to have him no longer be the president of the Russian Federation. Okay. Now, generals and and lesser people on the battlefield, if they're captured or Putin might hand them over in some kind of negotiated settlement or something like that, but the man at the top, generally speaking, does not get punished unless he is no longer the man at the top. Final question for you, when we're thinking about any of those three scenarios that we just talked through, how will that change NATO And how will it change Europe as a whole? So thinking the power balance that's Mm -hmm. currently there, how will that change? And as a reflection of that change, how will that change us here? It's made NATO much more relevant. I mean, a a lot of people, the former president was like, was always asking, oh, why are we in NATO? Why, you know, at the same time that he's forcing NATO to, or encouraging NATO to actually contribute its 2% of the GDP to defense, he would often talk about, you know, why do we need NATO? And to some extent he was right, but this has shown that we do still need NATO. And so it's kind of disproven. We didn't know at the time, obviously, that this was something like this was going to happen. But NATO has become more relevant. And the effect on Europe, again, will be an increase in their own, I think, spending on security. The question of refugees and what's going to happen, I think it's 4 million people have now fled and they're being admitted into various, resettled in various countries in Europe and elsewhere. That's going to change kind of the demographics, especially if those refugees decide to stay. The EU will be the most directly affected, not NATO, because the European Union is 
basically a giant collection of of sovereign states that are not fully sovereign because they are they're controlled to some extent their policies are controlled to some extent by Brussels and the uh, the European Commission and it's really hard to to predict like the economic or the social impact of the refugee crisis and of this resurgent Russia but I think there will be a much more fo- much more of a focus on what's going on to the east okay now how that how will that affect America I think we'll have to start paying you know the last Two presidents have really tried to shift to Asia in terms of the focus of American foreign policy and American trade and things like that. President Obama and President Trump both had this Asia shift, in, uh, especially as the war, the war on terror, the wars in Iraq, especially, and also Afghanistan kind of started to wind, wind down. I think that's going to change. We've realized that Europe for American security is important to some extent. Now, the, the whole question of should we get involved directly? Is Ukraine part of our vital national interests? Maybe we can talk about this, but it sounds like you're approaching the end of questions. I don't know if we want to get into that. But if Russia starts economically to interfere in other markets beyond what it's already doing, that's going to have tremendous impact. We're already feeling it. Again, we we don't necessarily buy or import a whole lot of Russian products, some oil, some natural gas, a lot of our fertilizer. Those are going to have long-term effects and downstream effects that we're seeing right now. If you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, we're feeling that. I don't know how you re- reverse that except to ramp up production in other right. parts of the world, whether it's here or in the Mideast right. or somewhere else. But gas prices here in Indiana are are above $4. I know in other parts of the country it's above 6 Those are here to stay until we can either get some government subsidies going, which has other downstream effects, or we start to produce more here at home, which has its own environmental and social cohesion effects as well. We're going to be living with this, I think, for a very, very long time, regardless of the outcome of any elections here in the, in the near future here in the United States. Uh, the Europeans are going to be dealing with this because they get, mm, I don't know if I would say most of their oil from Russia, but especially Great Britain, as I've said before, I talk a lot about, or I, I, I follow British politics uh, somewhat closely, they're on the verge, not of societal collapse, but of very serious disharmony and disunity because one political party has taken a whole bunch of money from Russian oligarchs and used it on political campaigns. The other side is taking a whole bunch of money from the Chinese government and using it for its political campaign. So it's adding to the political stresses in the UK, I think to a degree far greater than the political strains here in the United States. But around the world, Anytime there's this big of a disruption in any kind of economic market, that has long-term effects economically and financially, but also socially and culturally beyond the military sphere. So, Joe, as someone who is very involved in social media, let me ask you a question here. Do you think that social media is going to make it ultimately easier or more difficult for historians 20, 30, 40, 100 years down the line to put together an accurate and a complete picture of this war? I'm going to give you a confusing answer. Okay. Easier and harder. All right. So easier because people are able to share information in real time that is firsthand account. Yeah. This is not somebody that's relating their story to a reporter who will then write an article in a paper, and then that paper is shipped. These are people who are posting from their phones. My mind always goes back to that footage of that fighter jet firing around into the house. Mm -hmm. This is a person who was filming on their phone who filmed their house being destroyed by this pilot. And so in that sense, we're going to have real-time footage of what, what occurred in the war or what has occurred. 
it's going to make it worse because some of the footage is doctored. Mm. <laughs> some of the information is doctored. Both sides are conducting a cyber campaign. One side substantially more than the other, but in overall, there's a lot of information that's being spread that's false. Yeah. And so as you root through it, you do get those firsthand accounts, which are raw and real. And mm -hmm. unlike anything we've ever had access to in the past, at the same time, People are taking those firsthand accounts as this thing progresses, splicing them into other footage. Like I saw one where it looked like the Ukrainians were targeting a tank column. Well, it was spliced together. It was four or five different pieces of footage brought together really? to, to try and illustrate here's how here's how competent their army is. And their army is competent. And then yeah. the people there are fighting for their lives. But it was it was a piece that wasn't exactly honest. And so it is going to be harder in that sense to understand what information being shared on social is accurate and what is not. And on top of that, how do you sift through the opinions? Mm -hmm. People do not go to social media to get their minds changed. They go to have their ideas affirmed. Social is a giant selfie, <laughs> as we've shared in the past. And yep. so when I'm sharing about the Ukraine, I am sharing because I am outraged at what Putin is doing to these people. I am upset. I want to show what I've seen and say, look at this. Look at what I'm seeing. It's all about me. Mm -hmm. Now, now. The outcome is is good because I or hopefully good because I'm trying to show here's this atrocity we should all be against this everybody do something yeah. right but uh, overall I think historians are going to have the challenge of sifting through all of the information being shared to try and understand what is accurate and what is not yeah I agree 100% I don't envy that generation of historians having to sift through all of this all right and then one final question if our audience wants to learn more it wants to be informed about what's going on in Ukraine are there some sources? Are there some approaches to how we filter through the vast amount of information online, on TV, and everywhere else to kind of get an accurate, as accurate a picture as possible of what's going on in Ukraine and how it could potentially affect us? Yeah, great question. What I do is read a variety of sources. Mm -hmm. So there's usually common denominators in the variety that you read that you can hold on to uh, more tightly than others. If someone has a very, very, very strong opinion, either way in the slant or tone of how something's being reported, it's like, okay, like every human being, this writer has an opinion. And that's yeah. not a bad thing. Yep. Right? You know, it's just, but as somebody who's taking in the information, I want to hear, okay, what's the opposing argument? Or maybe it's not even an opposing argument. It's just as a different way mm. of reporting on what's going on. And between those two stories, as an example, how do they align? Okay. What are the common elements. And the more you read and the more variety you, you take in, the more common elements you're going to find. And that can really help give you a picture of what's going on outside of the natural opinions that all of us have. So I think especially in war, there is, and rightly so, a terror mm -hmm. that people have an anger, a sense of loss that is either rooted in reality from people who have actually lost children and family and their homes and everything they've ever worked for, you know, contributing to content versus somebody who hasn't experienced any of that, who's on the outside of it. Mm -hmm. Everything that that person who's lost everything is saying is true, absolutely true. But I want to understand also from the outside, like, okay, bigger picture here. What are the implications of what's going on? And again, through reading a variety of things, you can kind of find those common alignments. Yeah. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of the war in Ukraine. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. 
If you have questions that you would like to submit for us to answer, please do so. You can send them to us on Facebook, or you can email them to us at 15minutehistory at gmail.com. What we're going to do is get back to our regular posting schedule, but at the end of this season, we will have another discussion about the Ukraine, maybe some updates, and we will answer any questions that you, our wonderful audience, send to us. As always, please leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. And if you would like to help us make it even better, you can go to 15minutehistorypodcast.org and click the support button. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.